Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Heather, and I want to remind you about our very special tours to the UK. In 2017, we'll be doing tours focusing on the Evensong experience. The Evensong service comes from Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer from the mid-16th century. It's been dubbed the atheist's favorite service because it requires so little and it gives so much. It's simply divine choral music sung in some of the most historic chapels, abbeys, and cathedrals in England. We'll be spending 10 days visiting places like Cambridge, Oxford, Bath, the Cotswolds, Winchester, and Windsor with walking tours, free time to explore, and then gathering back each afternoon for the Evensong service if you choose to attend. It will be 10 days of beautiful countryside, historic cities and villages, and so, so much music. I invite you to go to englandcast.com tours for full itinerary and pricing information. Again, englandcast, E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T, englandcast.com slash tours. Big world, travel your passions. And welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. And this week, we're going to talk about a woman whom I've become completely enamored with. Her name is Bess of Hardwick, and she was this amazing woman who used her own luck, created her own luck, used the opportunity she was given in Rose from being born into a family of landed gentry, kind of yeoman farmers, to really becoming an, uh, a woman in the highest tiers of the nobility and the second wealthiest woman in all of England, second only to the queen herself. So she's a really amazing story, and I'm excited to be able to tell it to you this week. Also, I have to tell you that I'm podcasting to you this week from a hotel by the Frankfurt Airport. I'm here for the Frankfurt Book Fair. And so you're going to hear planes every couple of minutes. Um, taking off. And I'm really sorry about that. It's kind of just the situation that we've got right now. And I'm really not going to be thrilled with it when I'm trying to sleep tonight. So what I'm going to do when I'm trying to sleep tonight is I'm going to, instead of being ticked off about it, I'm going to imagine all the really cool places where the people who are on those planes are going to be going and all the really cool things they're going to be doing. So I would urge you, if you find yourself getting annoyed by the planes, to do a similar thing. You can just imagine all the really cool places where people are going. So 
that's my advice to you about the planes, and I do apologize for it. Here comes one now. I'm not sure whether you can hear that. Also, before I get started, a reminder that if you like this podcast, please rate it in whatever service you use to listen to it. If it's iTunes or Stitcher, it'll help other people to discover the podcast, and I would really appreciate it. Also remember that at englandcast.com, E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T, englandcast.com, there are continually updated resources like reading lists, all of the book recommendations that I give, listening lists for music. I have a Spotify playlist of English Renaissance music you can subscribe to. And there's also buttons to donate and links to the Patreon page if you are so inclined to financially support this podcast, either by giving a one-time tip or by making a regular subscription. And both are appreciated. And thank you so much to those of you who already do that. And also... I have a listener feedback number now. So you can call 801-6-TESCO or 801-683-9756 to leave me a message telling me what you think about the show, giving me show ideas, saying random nice things. That would be great. So again, 801-683-9756. So yeah, go ahead and call that if you have any thoughts you'd like to share with me. So let's go ahead and get started. Elizabeth Talbot, Countess of Shrewsbury, is popularly known as Bess of Hardwick. And like I said, she's a woman I've become exceptionally fond of. She's an example of someone who created her own luck by taking the opportunities that she had, which were were basically through her marriages, which were the opportunities women had in her day, And she made the most of them using her own smarts and her own intuitiveness and energy. And she was really cool. So she was born into a family that was landed gentry, like I said, not noble. And she rose to become the second wealthiest woman in all of England, second only to Queen Elizabeth herself. She became part of the highest tier of nobility. She was in regular correspondence with people like William Cecil, with Francis Walsingham, and others. And she's often remembered as a dynasty builder. And sometimes this is in a negative light. Um, She was very ambitious. And she's also remembered because her final husband, George Talbot, was Mary Queen of Scots' jailkeeper for the majority of her time that uh, she was in England. And finally, Bess's lasting legacy was her program of building works, including Hardwick Hall, which is still in existence. So Elizabeth was born Bess. I'm going to keep calling her Bess now because otherwise it gets confusing with Queen Elizabeth. So Bess was born around 1527 And she lived a very normal life, like I said. Um, She wasn't born into any kind of nobility. And in fact, her family didn't hold any kind of offices or anything like that. They were basic landed gentry. And she did learn some very important lessons early on about how women needed to take care of themselves. So her father, John, he was a gentleman yeoman. He died when she was still very young. And her mother was left with children to to care for and a lot of uncertainty around her future and her finances. So the tradition at this time, when a father died and his heir was still underage, 
it was common for them to be declared wards and for someone to buy the wardship and they, this person who bought the wardship would be able to take their rents and essentially make money off of the lands until the heir was an adult. And they were also supposed to then watch out for them and marry them to an, an advantageous place. Generally, it was into their own family. Um, but this was kind of the tradition. And this was done with Bess's family when her father died. And her mother was left with very little money to take care of her, to take care of her family. And she really struggled to be able to, to get what was due her as a widow. So Bess saw this and it made an impression on her. Of course it would. Um, when she was still a young teenager, she went to stay in the home of Anne Gainsford, who was Lady Zouche, and she worked as a sort of lady in waiting. And this was common for young gentlewomen as a sort of finishing school. They would go stay with a household that was maybe a rung or two higher than they were on the social scale if they were accepted. And they would learn valuable lessons about managing a household. And maybe somebody in the family could even help them rise and find a husband. And this is what happened to Bess. She married a guy called Robert Barlow. She was still a young teenager and he died. They, they were only married for a year when he died. So she was still very young, but she was his widow. And as such, she was entitled to a third of his land that he had inherited. And this was called the widow's dower. And his family were reluctant to give it to her, seeing as how she was still very young and would marry again and there were no children, but it was her legal right. And so she fought for it and she won and she was awarded this um, this land several years after he had died. Uh, but she did get it and, and it was a pretty good income for her to have as still a teenager who still had marri marriageable years in front of her. So... Her next move would be to the Gray home, and this is the home of Lady Jane Gray and her mother, Frances. Um, it was a fortunate move for her. It brought her into contact with some of the very highest levels of nobility. And, of course, Lady Jane Gray was the daughter of Frances, who was Henry VIII's niece. So she was related very high up. And Bess knew Lady Jane Gray and would have been friends with her, probably not close friends, but she would have known her, been an acquaintance of her, and she would have been affected as well when, when Lady Jane Grey went through everything she went through being declared the queen and then being executed. If you don't know the story of Lady Jane Grey, I actually did a podcast on her very early on. We're talking like years ago. I should probably update it because I it was a long time ago. Well, not like Lady Jane Grey has changed all that much, but um, <laughs> it might be nice to revisit her. So yeah, you can go check that out if you don't know the story about Lady Jane Grey. Um, Bess did keep a portrait of Lady Jane Grey her whole life. So we can imagine them having been friends and Jane making this impression on Bess. And it was at the Grey home where Bess met William Cavendish, who would be her next husband, her second husband. He was a courtier and he was the treasurer of the king's chamber. He had served Cromwell during the dissolution of the monasteries. And so he kind of made a fortune with that. He made out quite well financially. She became Lady Cavendish. And at the time, William was more than twice her age. And he already had two daughters, 
but it appears that their marriage was based on real feelings of attraction and affection. And they were married for 10 years before Sir William died. And during that time, she had eight children, two of whom died in infancy. So they were together a lot. She was pregnant almost every year and they were very close. And there was a lot of feelings of mutual respect and, and affection there. Bess was sympathetic to the Protestants, made sense considering she had served in the Protestant home of the Greys and her husband had made his fortune in the disillusion of the monasteries. So she kind of was trying to hedge her bets a lot and she asked Mary Tudor to be the godmother of her son Charles, but her son Henry was also the godson of Elizabeth. So, um, you know, she was trying to play both sides there, which was smart. And the children from this marriage to William Cavendish would all make good marriages themselves, one of whom I'm going to talk about later um, married the younger brother of Dorn Lord Darnley. <laughs> I said Dorn Larnley, but that's not right. Lord Darnley, to whom Mary Queen of Scots had been married. And their daughter, Bess's granddaughter, was Arbella Stuart, who had a claim to both the English and the Scottish thrones through her father. So I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, but yeah, all of the children made good marriages. And that's really where Bess became a dynasty builder was was with these surviving children, the Cavendish children. So in 1559, Bess entered her third marriage to William St. Lowe. She was still only around 30. And she'd been a widow twice now. And she had become wealthier through her marriage to William Cavendish, but he did have debts to the state, which William St. Lowe took on. But she was still a very attractive prospect at the time, too. And so William was the captain of the guard to Elizabeth. He owned large estates in Gloucestershire and Somerset. And again, when you look at their letters, you can see that they had a very happy marriage and he trusted Bess enormously. So he didn't have any sons. He had daughters and he also didn't trust his younger brother, who was a bit of a bad egg. And he wound up leaving everything that he had to Bess and sort of disinherited his younger brother. And his younger brother actually possibly poisoned William without realizing that Bess was the sole heir. He, he potentially wanted the land himself. There was a whole kind of saga around that. Um, but Bess was the heir. And she wound up having to fight for that as well. The younger brother kind of took her to court and, and it got quite messy. And Bess got to know the legal system fairly well uh, for a woman of only 30. She had been in, in and out of things a couple of times and uh, she, she had to fight to get what was left to her. And she became a very wealthy woman through this, uh, through getting all of the St. Lowlands. And she did... Uh, she was responsible then for caring for um, William St. Lowe's daughters, but they were all, they were both older and um, were protected already, were taken care of and were married. Uh, so the bulk of the estate went directly to Bess and to her children. So when William St. Lowe died, Bess was one of the wealthiest women in England. She had an income of over 60,000 pounds, which would be close to 17 million pounds in 2015 money. She had also become very close with Queen Elizabeth, and she was a lady of the bedchamber. She saw the Queen almost daily, 
And she was still really just in her late 30s. She was still quite young. She was still healthy. And so, of course, she attracted the attention of a number of men. She was a widow three times now, but she still had good looks. She was still really in the prime of her life. And so in 1568, she married her final husband, who was George Talbot, the sixth Earl of Shrewsbury, and she became a countess. And he had been married once before. He had seven children by that marriage. Two of those children married two of Bess's children from William Cavendish. So the families were further bound together. And and this was a common practice at that time as well for there to be kind of joint marriages like that to, to bind families together. So in the very early years of her marriage to Shrewsbury, they were happy. And their letters show that there was a lot of respect and a lot of affection between them. They had pet names for each other. Um, very sweet. But Sadly, events that were pretty much out of their control wound up ruining their marriage. So I talked about Mary, Queen of Scots in a previous episode. So if this information is new to you, be sure to go back and check that out. So when the Scottish lords rebelled against Mary, Queen of Scots, and she was forced to abdicate in favor of her infant son, James, she fled to England and she sought Elizabeth's protection as a fellow queen. But Elizabeth and her council, Cecil in particular, were uncertain about what to do with her. She was a Catholic. She had a very good claim to the English throne, a claim that was recognized by Catholics as being superior even to Elizabeth's, because the Catholics didn't recognize the validity of Henry's divorce from Catherine of Aragon. Catherine of Aragon was still alive when Anne Boleyn gave birth to Elizabeth, Thus, it made her a product of bigamy and illegitimate in the eyes of many Catholics. And so Elizabeth wasn't really sure what to do with with Mary, Queen of Scots, who was this kind of potential just bomb waiting to go off. And she took her into protective custody. And within a year of Bess and Shrewsbury's marriage, they had a new responsibility. They were the jail keepers of Mary, Queen of Scots. This would have been a thankless job for anyone, though early on, before anyone realized just how long it would go on, it it was a mark of being in good favor with the queen that she trusted them that much. And they were excited to be so well thought of. It, It was quite an honor. But Shrewsbury himself was essentially a prisoner as well, because he couldn't just leave Mary unattended. So he needed to be there with her. If there were any sorts of plots to free her, the rumors were circulating, would circulate that he wasn't strict enough with her. And of course, he couldn't just go off to court and defend himself because he was watching Mary. But on the other hand, she was the presumed heir to the throne. And he needed to tread very carefully because certainly if she ever did become the queen, if Elizabeth would die and she became the queen, she would remember whatever treatment she received. So they were really stuck in this giant pickle. And over time, as the months turned into years and the years and years went on, 15 years, it wore them both down. To make matters worse, the money that Shrewsbury had been allotted for Mary's care never went far enough. And he was constantly supplementing uh, her allowance from his own pockets. 
And early on, Bess and Mary did get along. Bess tried to befriend her and the two women became close. They did needlework together. They were both very accomplished um, with needlework and a lot of their tapestries still uh, remain. And they became close, somewhat close with each other. But over time, the stress just really wore on them. And, and the thing was, Bess could leave, and she did leave. She went to court. She took charge of her building project at Chatsworth, which had been a project started by William Cavendish. And she and Shrewsbury had signed sort of the equivalent of a prenup, prenuptial agreement. And she still had her own independent income. And the fact that she wasn't tied to the dark and dreary castles where Mary was being held and and that she had money to work on her building projects, that likely irritated Shrewsbury to no end. She was in every way a very independent woman, even though she was on her fourth marriage and, you know, was kind of dependent on her husband. She was she was actually very independent. And Shrewsbury's first wife had apparently been really meek and and mild. So he likely found the difference to be a lot more than he had bargained for. And over time, he became really exasperated with Bess, but also with the rest of his family. There were times when Bess often took the side of his other children when he was having fights with his sons. She would urge him to take better care of, her, of his sons or to reconcile with his sons. Um, she would advise his sons to do certain things, and, and it would make him really, really angry that she was that close with his sons and they were going to her, and he thought she was kind of undermining him. And it it really made things very stressful. So all of this stress really wound up leading to the breakdown of their marriage. And it was big news at court as it happened. It was quite the drama. Shrewsbury petitioned people like Cecil and Walsingham to force his wife to obey him. And Bess also petitioned them saying that she was being cheated of rents that were rightly hers as part of her prenup agreement, rents that had been paid directly to her. Uh, Shrewsbury was going around to people saying it had to be paid to him then as her husband and the landowners were kind of caught in the middle, not, not really knowing who they were supposed to pay. And, um, the renters. And it became a big saga. And uh, Bess actually took her husband to court. He took her to court. Time and time again, the courts actually ruled in favor of Bess and, and made Shrewsbury agree to certain conditions that he would give her her lands back. And he never actually listened to any of them. He just would would ignore them. And he grew more and more angry with everyone. He wrote these ranting letters to people at court saying that everybody was scheming against him. He was jealous of the fact that Bess had access to the queen through being able to be close to her as a lady of her bedchamber. Um, he, he wrote a lot of really ranty, angry letters. And um, even Queen Elizabeth begged them to reconcile, and they never did. And Bess often would blame Mary in a large part for their breakup. It appears that Mary might have kind of come between them and played one off against the other. It it just got really, really messy. And, and it's just a shame that it had to come to that. Mary was eventually moved to another keeper. That was where she got herself implicated in the plot that would lead to her execution. And Shrewsbury had to be a witness to her execution as well. So that, that would have been hard for him too, after he had spent a decade and a half watching her and, and becoming quite close with her. 
He died in 1590, and Bess became the Dowager Countess of Shrewsbury. She was 63 at this point. But, you know, she was still kicking. She was still raring to go. And she entered this new phase of her life where she started building projects, and she spent a lot of her energy advocating for the rights of her granddaughter, Arbella, who I mentioned earlier. And so Arbella came from the marriage of Bess's daughter, Elizabeth, to Charles Stuart. Charles Stuart was the son of the Countess of Lennox. She was herself the daughter of Margaret Tudor, and that was Henry VIII's sister. And Therefore, Charles, if you go back, was the great-grandson of Henry VII. So Margaret Tudor, Henry VIII's sister, was the daughter of Henry VII, and then her daughter, the Countess of Lennox, and then her son, Charles Stuart. So he's the great-grandson of Henry VII, making Arbella his great-great-granddaughter through Margaret Tudor. The marriage, when they got married... um, when Elizabeth married Charles Stuart, it got them into all kinds of hot water with Queen Elizabeth for both the Countess of Lennox and for Bess, because there was a law in place stating that anyone who had a claim to the throne needed to consult the Queen first before they got married, which they didn't do, clearly. And so the Queen didn't even know about it. Shrewsbury himself claimed that he didn't even know about it until after it was done, though he probably had a hint of it before. So here we are with Arbella having a claim to both the thrones of Scotland and England. And um, she became a bit of a small thorn in Queen Elizabeth's side over time. Arbella's parents both died and Bess raised her. There was a lot of fuss over who Arbella was going to marry. She was possibly betrothed there with all these rumors about her with different foreign dukes. But nothing ever came of the plans. And Arbella herself became very frustrated at her lack of freedom um, living with her grandmother, which was in a large part because Queen Elizabeth wanted her away so she didn't have to kind of deal with her. And she did run off and try to elope. And sadly, Arbella and her grandmother wound up falling out and Bess wound up begging Queen Elizabeth to take her off her hands and cut her out of her will. So that was a bit of a shame. And... Uh, She also started building Hardwick Hall, which would become her lasting legacy. It was a real new kind of building. The famous rhyme was Hardwick Hall, more glass than wall because of its use of windows. It was very bright, very airy. It was designed to host queens and to host royalty, which Bess wanted to do. And it's a beautiful building. Parts of it still stand today. And it's a really stunning building. I'll put some photos up on the website of it as well so you can check it out. So Bess died in February of 1608. She was 81 years old. God bless her. She just had a full life. And she does have a descendant on the throne now. Queen Elizabeth II is a descendant of her. And Hardwick Hall still stands as a testament to this woman's clever tenacity and her ability to brilliantly play her cards. Um, There's been a lot of negativity around Bess. It's funny, a lot of the websites actually just have such a negative slant about her, even as they're trying to present a a biography of her. Um, They say she was shrewd and a schemer. 
But you know what? I kind of smell some sexism going on with that. Because if it was a man doing the same things, he would have been seen as ambitious and that would have been good. So, you know, I don't know. Bess wanted the best for her family. She did. She wanted to build a dynasty and that's cool. Like that's, there are a lot of men who wanted to do that too. And um, she wanted a good life for herself. She wanted the lands that were her legal right. And she was really clever about all of it. You know, she outsmarted some men. And I think maybe that might not have worked in her favor when the chroniclers were writing their biographies and whatnot. But I think she's pretty awesome. And I hope you do too. Because, well, because I just hope you do. So that's it for this week. The book recommendation is... Bess of Hardwick, Empire Builder by Mary S. Lovell. And I'll put a link up on the site and on the Facebook page. And the Facebook page is facebook.com slash Englandcast. Again, you can contact me there, send me show ideas, just say nice things. And you can get all the book recommendations and the listening lists and the supporting materials for each show on the blog at englandcast.com. And also you can check out my blog dedicated to inspiring excitement and passion about history, travel and the humanities at curatory.com. I write there a lot. That's K-U-R-A-T-O-R-Y.com. And I've also started doing regular segments on different aspects of Tudor history on YouTube, and I call it the Tudor Minute. And so there's a link on the blog and the Facebook page. You can subscribe on YouTube, and I do about three a week or so, and so that's fun. So thank you so much for your listenership and your support. And the next episode I do in a couple of weeks is going to be in partnership with the podcast History Bitches. I'm so excited to do this. It's going to be on Ghosts of the Renaissance, and it'll be out in time for Halloween. And so we're going to be working on that together. I'm really excited about that. So again, thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Oh, ich hatte Bord im Bauerbrick, hat Soli Samli's on sich. 